welcome. This is the first inaugural episode of Another One for the Void. Might be a working title. We're not sure yet. I'm David. This is Stephanie. Um, we were coworkers. Uh, and that's how we get, met each other. Now we're friends. I have somehow convinced her to read this book by the literary pervert Frank Herbert um, called Dune. At least the first one. She's currently like a third of the way through about, you know, it's split up into three books that are that are like acts in the actual story for Dune, uh, the first novel. Are you enjoying it so far? Yeah, I mean, like. It's had a lot of exciting things going on, but there's a lot of like things that I'm not too familiar with. So when they make references to like the things in different planets, I'm just kind of out of touch with it. That's one of the things I like about Dune. It doesn't hold your hand going in. It's thick with plot and it's just going to fuck you with it right off the bat. It's not playing any games. It's going it's raw dogging you with it. No helping. You just got to work through it. Maybe reread it. Pick up some context loose. If you can't, just move on. That part will become more clear as they talk about it later in the book. No condom. Got it. No condom. No consent. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, um, so Dune's a lovely series. It definitely fucks with no condom, unlike Star Wars, which is everything Dune would want. It wants to be Dune. Um, it's thick with plot, and if you're having trouble with it, just get through it. If there's there's a couple words in there that I did not know myself, and I've you know been reading a bit for a while now, so uh, it definitely has a you know a little higher vocabulary than you know the standard read. Did you learn anything? What do you mean? Words. Words. Cupidity. Cupidity. That's a good word that they used. I had to look up. Cupidity is a good word. Um, but I guess we're just going to jump right into introducing the major characters and settings in Dune, because uh, that's important. So first character, Paul, our protagonist, Paul Atreides, the son of Duke Leto. Uh, how do you feel about Paul as a main character so far? Um, I feel like in the book, he feels like he's a lot younger than what he actually is. Uh, he definitely doesn't really feel like a, ki a kid because of like how he's always like processing stuff. Yeah, uh, so um, Paul is like this described as that he's a 15 year old boy um, and he's described as being like undersized for a 15 year old. But at the same time, he has this internal monologue caused by his training, which we're going to jump into a little bit later. It's important. Uh, and it the internal monologues for characters are vitally important for like reading Dune. Don't you agree? Like that. The internal. Like, yeah, yeah. The internal monologue. Like it's. It, it's exposition. It's the exposition. They don't exposit, or Frank Herbert doesn't exposit through conversation as much as it does through internal monologue. Yeah. The conversation is pretty quick. It's like a couple lines, maybe. And it's just like basically people reading each other's body language and like how they feel about everything or what they pick up or notice. Exactly. There's this uh, concept about uh, in, in Dune, they don't fight with guns or anything like that. They fight with sh the shields and knives and the shields stop anything from going too fast through them. So it's like this weird faints within faints within faints that are in the knife fights in Dune, which are uh, then 
mirrored in the conversations these characters have these interpersonal conversations they have they're always trying to figure out what the other character knows even if they're friends what the other character knows what they should tell the other character and how it will affect them and that's like the internal monologue that just runs through dune and all of these other characters and the characters do different things it's not always the same thing it's not always the same internal monologue because of the different trainings different characters if they're hot-headed what they're uh you know character traits obviously their traumas yes their traumas are also a thing that really uh trauma is a thing that uh is how these characters view things often um but that's a bit about paul we're going to revisit him when we talk about his parents and the other characters that are um linked to paul um and we'll talk about other characters in the next episode because we're probably only doing one third of the book so far we're going to get up to a certain point not Book one of Dune, but close. We're just just the cusp of book one into book two, which is basically act one into act two. So Duke Leto, Paul's father, what is what is your impression of the Duke? How does he fit? Like fit? I yeah. mean, he's his dad. Yeah, yeah. But like, um, <laughs> if Paul is a naive young boy who's just finding his way, his place in the world, in at least the first book of Dune our first book of dune um like act one what is duke leto is he a mentor is he you know his hero does he hate his dad what's his relationship with paul our main character i feel like he definitely likes him because he gets excited when uh they talk about his dad coming to pick him up to take him to the new planet um but whenever i see his interactions with jessica i don't like him why jessica is the duke's (laughs) We should introduce Jessica here because we're going to talk about the Duke. We'll revisit Jessica in a moment uh, just to talk about her herself. But uh, Jessica is the Duke's concubine. I'm putting air quotes around concubine. It's a podcast. You can't see that. I know that. Um, But he loves Jessica and she's what is a called a Benny Gesserit, which is this religion slash school of training. Um, We're going to revisit that when we talk about the Benny Gesser, but that's one of the reasons he made her his concubine and not his wife, even though he, the Duke does love Jessica. Why don't you like the Duke's relationship with Jessica? He just kind of feels cold, and it's weird because, you know, he goes ahead and he makes the, like, giant pool place for her, but... It just kind of feels like really cold still. He's like, yeah, I love her, but I'm not going to marry her. And I understand why, because there's political reason behind it. But I'm still like, eh. Yeah, that's, um, I understand that. It was written in a different era. It, you know, it was written in like the 60s. So, and Frank Herbert is a bit sexist. There's gender is important. And, you know, understanding your author and like where they're coming from also is important for understanding the characters because the characters they're writing are either characters from their lives or characters they've been thinking about for a while that 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 is part of them in the book um so you know there are you know things we have to accept reading it because it's a it is a product of its time and not excusing that but you know she is viewed as a little bit lesser and subservient to the duke which is uh uh the duke's pretty cold as a character cold and calculating but fair he's a fair he's a fair uh leader and that's like uh, one of the the major things like they talk about in the Duke and his the, his house. There's houses uh, when she was talking about political reasons. That's what she's talking about. The Duke leaves himself open for marriage for a political alliance with the other houses, possibly great houses. There's a whole imperial structure to Dune with the emperor at its head. And then you have the great houses underneath him. And then underneath the houses are minor houses that are loyal to 
the great houses. The great houses have fiefdoms, which are like uh, kingdoms or like little, well, usually planets in Dune, but um, that they're in control of. And that's what kicks off the story in Dune is House Atreides is being basically forced politically to take the fiefdom of Arrakis, which is a uh, desert planet, the inverse of what Caladan is, which basically would be a paradise. Uh, green everywhere, water running, great. Where you want to be, it's a nice place to live. Arrakis is a desert planet where water is vital. So it's all this interesting change that the House Atreides is going to have to go through. Um, did you think it was a little too on the nose that Caladan is the inverse of Arrakis? It's its mirror image, it's foil. It is a green lush uh, forest from pole to pole where Arrakis is a desert planet. Do you think that was like a little too on the nose? On the nose as in like what? obvious a little ironic like a little too ironic like you know it's obvious that he's trying to make a big difference between the lives of the atreides from where they were living and now where they are living on arrakis he could have made uh caladan more like earth where they, you know there's deserts you know there's polar regions where caladan's forest to forest basically it's a forest planet or a tropical and you know they talk about it and jessica talks about it a lot it's a theme in jessica's story is her hearkening back to Caladan and the, how harsh Arrakis is. I think it slaps. <clears throat> yeah. I like it a lot because he's constantly reminded about like how precious or valued like things he didn't even give a fuck about in the previous uh, planet are now there. Like, um, you know, they were talking about the trees and what was it? It was like uh, a tree is the same as like 20 lives so because of the water. In the story, one of the plot points we'll get to a little bit later, Jessica finds this room that's sealed off with a, uh, uh, an environmental seal to keep water in, and it's a paradise in there, comparatively to Arrakis, where uh, on Arrakis, everyone's lives are measured by how much water you need water. Water is vital. There's people who collect dew, dew in the morning. There's moisture catchers. Everyone's concerned about conserving, conserving their personal moisture. And these trees, these date trees that actually live outside of Arrakis or outside in Arrakis uh, are worth 40 lives. The water each day that feeds these trees are worth 40 lives. And that's not even including the water and everything that's happening in this private chamber that is on top of the new or the, the, the new uh, residence of House Atreides. And the water conservation is the rule in Dune. You do not conserve your water, you will die. We got a little off topic, got a little meandry there into the story and, you know, some background of, you know, Arrakis and the uh, political system. But uh, get back to the Duke and House Atreides. The Duke's men, there's three of them that I'm going to talk about right off the bat. Uh, one's name is Gurney Halleck. We're going to get away from some normal names real quick. Um, you know, Paul's a pretty normal name. Leto's a little out there. Jessica's a normal name. But, you know, Gurney Hallett, not crazy. Then we have Duncan, Idaho. Yes, like the state. And the third one we want to talk about is Thufir Hawat. He's a mentat. But um, the Duke's men are interesting. They have interesting relationships with Paul. Um, the first time we're introduced to one of the Duke's men in the story, we are introduced to Gurney Hallett training Paul in how to fight which Duncan Idaho is traditionally it. So it's this interesting interaction because it's Paul's not used to dealing with Gurney Halleck. Do you remember that scene and how it like played out and the knife fight they had? Kind of. So 
there's this moment where Gurney Halleck is seriously pressing Paul, you know, offensively, and Paul has to defend, and he has this brief moment where he worries about, is Gurney Halleck loyal to his father? Because his father had recently talked about, you know, them going to Arrakis and how there might be a traitor, and, you know, we have to watch out for this kind of shit, yada, yada, yada. And there's this brief flash in his mind, and it's the internal monologues that run like a racehorse through the story that really give us this exposition into like this little insight you know uh the 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 faints within faints within faints is gurney halleck truly loyal to my father or has he posed as someone who's loyal and has been bought now and going to assassinate me while under the cover of training me i thought that was an interesting thing did you like really catch that or no really okay yeah. i remember i specifically reading Do- uh, dune for the second time there's these little things that i've caught that are like really really uh important that have stood out in my mind not the major plot points but these little things that give dune its real true flavor look out for them if you're gonna read it uh it's a lovely little in that you can uh you little nuggets you can pick out or you know read it a second time and you pick up your own um so let's talk about jessica you tell me who jessica is instead of me doing all this exposition right now um jessica's paul's mom not married to the duke even though that does still make paul his true heir because you know that they have heirs and that's an important thing in the story paul is the duke's true heir even though jessica is a concubine i really like jessica when she went ahead and like had the interaction with the Reverend Mother. Into the mic. The Reverend Mother uh, is an uh, interesting character. She is a religious uh, head in this organization called the Benny Gesserit. I'm not 100% sure if that's how it's said. I've heard it said that way. I haven't heard it out of Frank Herbert's mouth, though. So who knows? Uh, but they're this organization that's uh, concerned with genetic lines and training they're all women forgot that part that's important um and they're all women and they train uh all of them in these certain ways that uh make them desirable uh politically and also they are agents of the Bene Gesserit even when they get married off to houses they are expected to fulfill their duties as Bene Gesserit even though their loyalties lie with the house head Anything else you want to talk about Jessica or the Benny Gesserit? Any questions? The interaction that they had with them. Ah, ah. Uh, she basically goes ahead and confirms that she gave up the, the chance to give birth to a daughter and decided to give birth to a boy just to appease her not husband. That's an interesting thing where we go back and forth on what's true. We have untrue uh, narrators in the story. Uh, Jessica's point of view is that she let happen what was going to happen and it turned out to be a son where other people are accusing her of having a son intentionally. The Bene Gesserit can choose. They have full body control. Like It's an important thing. It's one of their trainings that follows into this thing called the Litany of Fear, which is a repeated and repeated and repeated throughout Dune. Uh, the Bene Gesserit use it. Um, it uh, quell fears because you know full body training is great, but if you can't do full body training when you're afraid what's the point um have you has she talked about the litany of fear yet or has paul recited it or 
fear is the mind killer fear is yes. the yeah okay so they, they go through the whole litany at one point i think uh, maybe or at least the majority of the litany and that's the religious side of the Bene Gesserit. the other side is the the the, the genetics the Bene Gesserit wanted all to be a girl to preserve his genetic line because they were planning on marrying paul or female paul in their choice to someone else and it could may have caused an issue in producing what is called the Quitzak Haderach, which is basically the Bene Gesserit's messiah. That's their end goal, is to produce a male Bene Gesserit who can take the truth-saying drug and become what is the inverse of a revered mother, but male. Um, they talk about it a little bit later. I'm not going to really talk about what a revered mother is and what Paul would be as the Quitzak Haderach because it reveals way too much of book two and the events in book two of Dune one. Um, so yeah, uh, so Paul has really thrown the, the, the fact that Paul exists as Paul has thrown a wrench into their plans. And there's this interaction between the revered mother and uh, Jessica where at the start, we're going to hit one of the plot points that are major here talking about the revered mother. Um, She's there to test if Paul is human, air quotes again, and not an animal with this box and uh, a poison needle called the J Gom Jabbar. Uh, and the test is to see if he is going to pull his hand away. And if he does, well, something might happen. Um, but it's this thing. It's the first test for Paul on his way to be fulfilling the, this uh, prophecy as the Quitzak Haderach. And if he was human, or if he is human, he passes. If he isn't, we don't really know what happens. Paul is all worried about that going into the test, and he wasn't expecting this, and the revered mother. And it's because Paul's been being trained as a Benny Gesserit by his mother, which men aren't supposed to be, at least not without the permission of the Benny Gesserit. And Jessica didn't get permission to have a son, and she didn't get permission to fucking train him. So... She's in hot water. It's interesting. The revered mother's a very interesting character. You don't see her a lot in the story. Did you like the revered mother and you know, the short little... Yeah, I did. ...punch she has in the story? Yeah. She was kind of sassy, but it was interesting to see, like, how much control she had. And, like, everyone just kind of, like, did as she said and no questions asked. I mean, except for Paul, but... The voice... The voice is something the Benny Gesserit also control, basically instilling commands into people without people understanding how they did it. Um, it's not exactly talked about how they do it in book one. It's hinted at. Talks about it way more in depth in book two. So we'll hit that then. The voice. The revered mother, you know, commands an extreme amount of respect because she's a, what is called a truth sayer, which if she takes a drug and tries to tell if you're telling the truth she knows 100 percent right or wrong she's a lie detector if you're telling the truth or not which is terrifying um now to shift a little bit into instead of like our well i mean the reared mother was a shift away from house atreides but the duke's enemies have you met baron harkonnen 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 i'm not exactly sure how it's pronounced that guy that guy Okay, so I think they talk, I think there's like a little blurb at the start of one of the chapters in book one where we talk about Baron Harkonnen and, or we interact with Baron Harkonnen and he's um, rotund. Uh, he's a huge man and he's purely disgusting. He is a little too on the bad guy scale to be obviously a bad guy. I prefer my, uh, my villains to be a little, have a little shades of gray. He's a lot gray, a lot villain. 
pretty upfront. His internal monologue, you get that. You you get that also. And you know, it's obviously you know he's a sinister character. We're just gonna move on from him. There's also the Baron's Men we we get introduced to in book one. Um, there is. Oh shit! We'll talk about Thufir Hawat here because we fucking skipped him. Uh, we'll get into him. It's fine. There's a character that we can link him to. So the Baron has two nephews who are who are his heirs. There is the Beast Radaban, which is taking after the Baron a little too much, and the Baron looks down on him some. And his other nephew, uh, Fade Rautha, Fade Rautha, and Fade Rautha is not like the Baron at all, other than he's devious. He's skinny, he's lithe, he um, is almost the inverse physically of the Baron, but is like him in how devious and tricky, smart he is. So, and then the third one we're going to talk about is Peter DeVries is this Mentat. Mentats are another training of school. What do you know about the Mentats and how would you describe them? So far, you're not really given a lot of it. You get some more no. info from Paul later. But <clears throat> who's Thufir Hawat to you? Not important. He's not important yet? No. Okay, he becomes important. He's a Mentat. Mentats are... Mentats are a result, and so are the Bene Gesserit of what is something called the Butlerian Jihad. We're going to talk about the Butlerian Jihad probably on the next episode. It's a little difficult. It's what happened to, like 10,000 years before Dune, and it had its repercussions, its echoes through time have caused these schools to be developed. Basically, AI took over, they overthrew the AI, and because the AI had created a galactic empire to keep it together, they had to super train these people. And Mentats are one of them. The guild, the Spacers Guild, is another. Benny Gesserit are a result, a pseudo-result of the Butlerian Jihad as well, but not directly. But the Mentats basically crunch un... Basically, they take problems that you cannot put a number to and calculate them and come up with an answer. And they're vital for political gains, for military gains, for all kinds of things. Thufir Hawad is a renowned Mentat because he's also trained uh, a trained fighter, which is a rare thing. And he's an assassin. An assassin Mentat is vitally important if you're trying to gain power. The inverse, the Baron's Mentat, Peter DeVries, is trained the same way, but he's almost a little too obtusely called the uh, bad Mentat, um, where he has, he's given into some vices, he does things he's not supposed to do as a Mentat, he desires things, and we'll talk about him later once we hit the end of book one and into book two, because he becomes a vitally important character because the Baron's plan for... Radaban and uh, our boy Peter DeVries. Um, we'll also touch Peter DeVries a little bit later when we talk about Spice. Spice is a crucial resource in the Dune universe. What do you know about the Doctor? Doctor Yu? His wife, Juana. What about her? She's dead. Yes. <laughs> yes, she is dead. We found that out right towards the end of the book one, and we found it out because Jessica was having a conversation with her. Do you remember a uh, fact about his wife that is related to Jessica? She's also Benny Gesserit. Oh, so, yes. Um, because he, won he wonders why she never gave him a child. 
Yes. He always wonders about it. He uh, has trauma over her. He does. He's like so heartbroken. Every little thing, he's like, my wanna. <laughs> we don't meet him a lot. We don't talk to him a lot so far in the book, but he is the Duke's doctor. He is also imperial, imperially conditioned, which means he shouldn't be able to be blackmailed. He uh, should have, you know, uncorruptible ethics. Um, he's from the Sukh school um, of imperial conditioning, which is important, plays a role, but um, that's why he's so trusted. And Jessica talks to him and he sees the things that Jessica is doing in the conversation, the faints within faints within faints, and because Juana had trained him and in some of the ways the betting guys are due, so he knows to not, you know, to tell the truth when it's a crucial moment, but don't let too much on, you know, the, the, the little ways that you get around people in Dune and the internal monologues that uh, exposit this are, again, a thing that is a theme throughout Dune. So... Hit real quick back on the emperor, the imperial side. The emperor, um, he's an important character, but we don't really meet him in Dune at all. But we meet him through his daughter, and in, before each chapter, there's a little excerpt from Princess Irulan, another important character to Dune. But you don't really get to see who she is, and the only thing we see about the emperor is basically her interactions with him in these little blurbs. Did you like that as an addition to the book, or? I mean, it it kind of adds on me wanting to read more because I'm like, okay, I want to know more, but also I'm like frustrated because I need more. They're short. <laughs> they're a little bittersweet because they lead into these things that are then explored a little bit in the books later. It's not in the same chapter. It's later in the books that the things they hint at uh, or those uh, excerpts. And they're not from the same thing. She's uh, written books, historical books in the future, and that's what these blurbs are from. Um, I think it's an interesting thing, but the first time I read the book, I read about maybe 10 of them, and then I stopped reading them, because I was like, oh, it doesn't matter for the plot, fuck it. That's the wrong choice. Read them. They're really good, they're fun when you like have like something that was hinted earlier, and you hear later in the book, you're like, oh, the fucking princess was talking about that. Great writing, Frank, good job. Um... So yeah, that's a, the, about the only thing we get about the emperor. We talk, we they talk, the characters talk about the emperor and his imperial Sardaukar, uh, who that come from the planet Seleucus Segundus, um, <laughs> which are important in the whole political structure. There's basically three pillars of the empire: the imperial, which is headed by the empire in the houses that support him. You have the Landestrap, which is like a collection of the great and minor houses that are not supporting the Imperial House. Um, and then you also have the Spacers Guild. So do you, have, do you know anything? Do you have any questions about them and how they interact? Or No? Okay, great. Fantastic. Um, so I'll just go into it. More exposition from me. Yeah. Wow, really fucking carrying this one. Uh, Sorry. <laughs> um, but the uh, the Imperium uh, is set up with the Empire and his Imperial Sardaukar come to this prison planet called Seleucus Segundus, or at least they allegedly come from this prison planet called Seleucus Segundus. They're interesting, and there's plot. There's back plot that I didn't catch the first time, which we'll touch on next episode if we get there. Um, but the Emperor is backed by the, the Sardaukar, uh, and the Imperial Houses together 
militarily equal the emperor and that's how the power is laid and you know the imperial house is worried about uh one house uniting the landestrat and overthrowing him and the smaller houses uh are worried about the emperor using his sardaukar which are these elite forces to just crush an imperial house a strong one or a, a strong landestrat house and um so that's the tension there and the spacers guild keeps everyone in check because they're this population of people that have diverged a bit who don't no one sees the spacers guild but they use the drug spice to plot intergalactic not intergalactic throughout the galaxy courses that they can't do with intelligent computers which they got rid of because of the butlerian jihad so there are a result of that. The, the echoes. Time repeats itself. Um, so yeah, that's that. And then we're going to get into the minor thing. The minor political players are the Benny Gesserit and Choam. The Benny Gesserit we already talked about, but the you know the secret power they hold is you know because their women are desirable because for a variety of reasons, choosing their heir, uh, the powers they have. You know they can tell if people are lying. The voice. Um, they're desirable by these leaders, so because these these powerful people marry the Benny marry into the Benny Gesserit, and the Benny Gesserit preserve these DNA lines, um, they're they're stealing power ever so subtly, and it's a lovely little thing, lovely little game the Benny Gesserit play. They also the other power the Benny Gesserit have is truth saying. The revered mothers they can truth say become vitally important to the emperor and people in power because they can put them in their employ and find out if someone's lying or not which you know is expensive but you know if you need to do it you need to do it so that's how they play together and that the guild's the only people that can enter interplanetary travel so everyone has to pay the guild fees and that gives them massive amounts of power because they control travel between the planets so everyone has to bow down to them Choam is the economy basically all of the houses get dividends from putting products into Choam and spice is the major product spice this drug that is vitally important which we're going to get into right now just give me a second um choam is the economy and it's important we'll touch on it in a second about how the duke got an important part but spice what do you know about spice tell me what spice is so far of your understanding everywhere on the new planet arrakis yeah. the new planet is arrakis dune is the uh nickname i guess for it but arrakis is the true name of the planet desert planet it spices does. everywhere and it's so important that they need to go ahead and start building like these giant machines to collect it out of everything they have it in the air and the water and like the plants like everywhere everywhere spice is the lifeblood of the empire it is gasoline and cocaine in one it's a drug and it's addicting to the point where if you get addicted to it and you stop taking it you fucking die so, if you're on Arrakis, and you're eating Arrakis food, Arrakian food, pardon me, got a proper conjugation, um, it's going to get into your body, and you're gonna, it's going gonna, it's gonna to addict you. And the people who live there have to consume, I mean, it's in their food, so it's not a problem, but you, know, you can't go off-planet without having a spice supply. Uh, once you've lived on Arrakis for a while, which is a thing we talk, they talk about, but it's this lifeblood, and that's what Choam's main economy is, spice. That's how most of the Choam delegates and directorships make their money is through the, the 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 price of spice basically and it's this vitally important resource that everything revolves around that's why the duke is getting arrakis because 
under the false pretense of the emperor has said you control arrakis and keep the spice flow going because the baron's man who was the beast rataban who was running arrakis was not doing a good job there were revolts that was costing them spice production so what she was talking about these machines there's these uh, these crawlers that go out into the desert that get airlifted into the desert to harvest the spice and the duke gets to the uh, arrakis and there's this change of hands between the baron and the duke and the man that's the arbiter of it is the judge of change i think that's what his name he's the planetologist the ecologist of dune Keynes. Keynes. i'm not exactly sure how to pronounce it he's a vitally important character in the plot to dune and book two Book, end of book one, there's a lovely little dinner scene where he's an important character as well. We'll hit that scene next episode. It's a vitally important scene. It's really where we start to see the faints within faints within faints within their conversations. Um, that's the first, like, obvious example of that. But Spice is the lifeblood. If there's no Spice, the, empri the Empire collapses. So that's also why, and House Trades is forced into it because no house would back off of that gift the Emperor has given him, this fiefdom of Arrakis. So, what is your, what, what is your take on Arrakis? Would you want to live on Arrakis? Fuck no. No? It's way too hot, obviously. Um, so these, the, the, the natives have to wear these things called still suits, which are this clothing that preser preserves moisture, all of your moisture. It collects your sweat, it collects your urine, it collects the moisture out of your shit and recycles it so you can drink it because moisture is vital. People die every day on Arrakis because there's just not enough fucking water. Well, Which, that's why they're also mad that they showed up. Yes. And there's these little things of wealth that you see. The house that the House Atreides lives in now, the big, uh, the big palace they live in, does not have moisture sealing, which is a sign of wealth because they don't have to worry about moisture because they're so water rich and the uh, fremen which are the native people and then there's also the people that live in the cities um of arrakis that envy and kind of hate them but the duke's a good leader and he knows under he understands how to manipulate people so he does some things you know some propaganda here a little thing there changes uh custom here to make it easier on the people of Arrakis because he knows that he needs to keep the spice production flowing, get on the good side of the people, and at the same time, as long as there's no riots or anything like that, he has less problems to worry about because he has called out the Baron and Clan. Clan? Clane? Clane? I don't know. It's ritual combat between two houses. And the Her Baron Harkonnen, who was in control of Arrakis, and the Duke, who's taking control of Arrakis, knows there's some type of trap set on arrakis so less problems he's got to deal with easier it is to deal with the fact that the baron is trying to fucking murder him and his family house atreides arrival on arrakis and jessica meets an interesting character mapes yes shout out mapes how'd that how was that play out uh, she goes ahead and realizes, like, that she's, is it Ben Gresset? Benny Gesserit. Benny, Benny Gesserit. Shout out, Mapes. <laughs> realizes that Jessica is Benny Gesserit. That's important. But why? What's the interaction between them? 
Mapes is talking in code. Yeah, and- she's like testing her and she has to think about it before she answers. She uh, gets gifted this sick ass fucking sword. A like Chris the- knife. A Chris, Chris knife. knife. Yeah. Um, so Mapes asks her some pointed questions and Jessica realizes that they are pointed and treads carefully. Apparently she answers right. Um, and Mapes presents her with this thing called the Chris knife, which we learn later is vitally important to the Fremen. We'll talk about Chris knives later. They are cool as fuck. Um, but right there, we find out that they are these worms. We've missed the worms of Arrakis. Uh, cool. An injustice, an injustice. Arrakis is in the desert. There's these giant, huge, like unfathomably massive worms that just fucking eat everything. Everything and anything that touches the desert floor, they fucking eat. And they're fucking awesome. They're so fucking cool. Um, the worms have teeth inside, and somehow the Fremen take the teeth and make them into these knives called Chris knives. Then the knife has to be near someone's body, or else it will deteriorate. They are also religiously important to the Fremen, which is something Mapes kind of hints on because she's testing Jessica, and Jessica realizes that there's something called another thing that Benny Gezer do, which is the Mission Protectivia, which sets up religious myths to help the Bene Gesserit on these foreign planets where they don't have a presence yet in case a Bene Gesserit needs um, some help in one way or another manipulating people. So she realizes that the Bene Gesserit have set up a mission protectivia on Arrakis and that's what these pointed questions are about. That's how she negotiates them. She also realizes shout out Mapes is a shout out is a title in an old um Old, old tongue, old uh, language. So that was a hint uh, as well of like, you know, what could or could not be put, what mission protectivia would have been put down on Arrakis. It's a really interesting interaction and it's important going forward into book two. And we're going to segue right into an attempt on Paul's life. So Paul's sleeping and this little the hunter seeker drone thing comes out of this plate in the wall that slides down real fucking mission impossible shit here um and paul realizes what's happening through his benny gesert training uses the litany of fear which i reversed referenced earlier uh and catches it and smashes the tip of it which is apparently it digs into people and then finds a bloodstream and then goes to your closest major organ and just fucking eviscerates it. I mean, it's metal as fuck, but fuck, that's not how I want to die. But Paul was just fucking stone cold about it. Not a fucking pulse. No increase in his heart rate at all. Absolute control. That's what the Benny Gesserit do, and that's why they're important, and that's why Jessica trained Paul as it, because there's these things that are vitally important that are going to help her son survive. He's also trained as a Mentat by Thufir Hawat, which is important as well. Um, so it makes him super analytical. He gets to make all these pointed, he makes all these pointed questions throughout the story and understands things beyond what a child should, or at least that's how some people put it. Um, so Apparently the new messiah. Ah, yes, he might be the new messiah. We'll see. Um, we'll see, you know, the Quitsack Haderach. Uh, he understands that that's like a legend and he kind of fits the description a little bit. 
but he also is very wary of this purpose he feels that is being thrust upon him without his own choice in it. Feels like he often feels like it's getting away from him that you know he is playing into a plot that he cannot change even though he sees it in front of him things happen they're not very vitally important it's just some more exposition into like the culture of dune the next plot point that's important in book one is the duke talk has talks with paul and his men uh his soldiers his lieutenants and he's very honest with his son because he thinks he needs to be he needs to make sure he's mature enough and he has these talks about uh, an attempt on his life and how the Emperor might be plotting with a Baron against the Duke and how it's most likely going to happen and how the Emperor is going to lend the Baron his Imperial Sardaukar and they're going to storm Arrakis with Arkanen uniforms and how he's going to... The, the plots he's trying to set up to prevent this or uh, insulate himself from it and understand, make sure Paul understands that, uh, you know, these are real things. And, it's really a sobering thing, like the reality that he's just thrust this 15-year-old kid into. Do you think you could handle fucking an attempt on your life and then your dad like, oh, by the way, um, I'm going to be a dick to your mom. And uh, if I die, you got to tell her that I loved her. And you're the emperor. Yeah, he's trying to kill us. Um, and so is the Baron, who is like our arch nemesis and has definitely put a trap on this planet that I brought us here to. So like, good luck, kid. Um, How has he not had a panic attack yet? Like, dude, I have no fucking idea, but I wish the litany of fear worked for me, motherfucker. <laughs> There's no way I would have been able to handle that at 15. I was just using escapism into video games to handle my fucking life. No video games. True, true. No video games. No video games. Smart, smart, smart technology. They are super advanced. Doing super advanced because it's technically, according to Frank Herbert, uh, the literary pervert, uh, you know, thousands of years in our future tens of thousands of years in our future but um eh, no fucking thinking machines that replicate human thought because that's against the fucking rules of the orange county bible orange catholic catholic orange catholic oh my god <laughs> orange county yeah nice um but yeah so uh oc bible the, oh, yeah that's what they talk they re- references the oc bible all the time uh the doctor gives paul one yes uh, and that's when he uses the word cupidity yes that's where cupidity was and i had mm-hmm. to break out the phone google <laughs> cupidity definition like man yeah. fuck you frank but this book is sick as fuck he goes ahead and he has to like be so gentle with it and like he's like this is how you use it and if you fuck it up you're gonna ruin this book forever it's this old <laughs> relic that uses this like dated technology where the pages are like projected out of the book and it's this interesting interaction between the doctor and paul because he he asked paul to hit this tab which is basically uh a bookmark and he goes to it and what the bible originally was was the doctor's wife's bible and she had bookmarked her favorite passage. passage paul starts reading it and the doctor freaks the fuck out panic attack He's traumatized. He's supposed to have conditioning. What the fuck? Where's the conditioning? Traumatized. Beach boy is what he is. <laughs> I shouldn't say that. I shouldn't say that. So uh, I think it's alluded at this part. If not, fucking spoilers. Sorry, motherfucker. The Baron took the doctor's wife, and we'll see what the Baron does with her. You know how he uses her. This political maneuver he's trying to fuck around with. 
Um, and the last thing we're going to talk about is meeting a vitally important character for Paul and his future on Arrakis. This Imperial, Imperial is important because he serves the Emperor. Planetologist, according to him, everyone else calls him an ecologist, but he's like, please, I prefer the title planetologist. Uh, thank you very much. Keens. Uh, he's this doctor of like, or like ecology of the planet, and he studies it and how it goes. And there's a me they're meeting. Paul starts uh, asking these pointed questions at him about Arrakis and, you know, the worms, the environment how it's become like it is, and the doctor, or, you know, Keynes, does not like it. He's not a fan of Paul, this boy child, asking these pointed questions while he's trying to manipulate his father into doing whatever the fuck he wants. Yeah, he was pissed about the pep talk he had beforehand, and them telling him, you can call him his highness, or his liege, or... Noble born. <laughs> That's yeah. That's what I like. I like I like that title. That was the thing Frank fucking slid in there. Nobleborn and word choices are important with uh, the book, obviously because it's a novel. But you know, um, there's a jihad. They use the word jihad a lot, which is an interesting choice in word because you know uh, it's a religious war. Uh, which you could have he could have inversely used crusade. You have used, you know, the Butlerian Crusade instead, but it was he makes these important choices and these also important cultural things. Call back to Jessica's interaction with Shadow Mapes, Mapes, whatever the fuck her name is. I don't fucking know. Um, she has when she draws the Chris knife, she has to blood the blade, and before she resheaths the blade, because blooding the blade is you know drawing blood with it, and that's. Frank Herbert fucking stealing this fucking uh, this warrior culture in uh, the Middle East or you know Western Asia um, that they if they draw their knives they have to blood their blade and Frank Herbert steals you know little things from our our reality here and there throughout and incorporates it into the book into something we can recognize and word choices are important in those incorporations. So. That's the plot points we wanted to hit in this episode. Do you have any questions about Dune that I may or may not answer? Maybe I'll have more questions later on. Motherfucker. <laughs> uh, so I guess that's the end of the episode. Thanks for listening. Uh, we're not really sure when these are going to be coming out and on what basis and how long we're going to do them. I'm looking at probably three episodes for the books or for the book one for the novel of dune uh one episode for each book or you know maybe close to each book we might end up getting into four episodes because the last act slash book of dune one is fucking breakneck pace with these plot points book one is slow as fuck book two picks up a bit but book three is fucking a motorcycle flying 150 miles an hour down the highway it's fucking fast Shit's just happening. You're like, what the fuck? Wait, um, it was moment to moment, oh, fucking two chapters ago, but there's just a two year time skip. They just slide in there real quick. Like, oh, by the way, there's two years have passed since the last events we talked about. So we might have to do four episodes for the first book of Dune. And then 
We'll see. We're probably going to do an episode for the new movie of Dune. We might also do an episode for the old movie of Dune, David Lynch. There's an old movie? There is an old movie, 1984. Oh, it's not great. No one thinks it's very good. <laughs> there's actually, I think, two Dune ones. There's all, there's Dune, which was the 1984 David Lynch film. And then there was like uh, another one, Frank Herbert's Dune, I think. And oh, shit. I think that might have been like, I don't know what the fuck that one is, but whatever. We're probably just going to watch the movie movie one uh, with Sting in it and... We'll see. Sting? Sting, the musician. Okay, old <laughs> rock guy. Get cultured, Jesus Christ! I don't know I'm American kidding. culture. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that's about it. Uh, thanks for listening. Uh, I guess catch us on the next episode. Bye!